0: Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the
1: perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk, fresh meat. Come on, boy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello, and welcome to another episode of... Dose of Ether. Thanks for joining us. This is your host, Lucian. Joining me again is Evan Van Ness. How's it going, Evan? Howdy. I've been a little over-caffeinated this week um, because you managed to convince me to try Herbal Mate.
0: And it will be the best thing that ever happened to you. I, I take full credit for it.
1: You were basically on Twitter today defending drinking mate during conference calls. But, like, people drink coffee and tea all the time during conference calls.
0: Yeah, but sometimes people, like, mate looks a little bit different because there's the straw. I
1: don't know. Um, (laughs) I mean, if it was out of a tiki cup and there was a little umbrella on it, then yeah maybe i'm drinking my ties in the afternoon while i work during conference calls
0: i mean americans and europeans don't necessarily have well really anybody outside of south america doesn't necessarily understand what you know what it is so sometimes it takes some explanation
1: so explain it for us
0: relax yeah, so the Guarani Indians were had this tradition where they, or custom I suppose is a better word, where they would hollow out a gourd and then they would put these tea leaves in, in the gourd and then they would pour boiling water into it and then uh, use a straw, um, which I assume was some sort of hollowed out reed or bamboo or something. And drink the mate from that. And when the Europeans showed up, they actually have, you know, letters where they, you know, we're going to make this punishable on death or whatnot. And, you know, we're going to train the natives not to do it. And then, of course, like, 50 years later, everyone's doing it. And, uh, you know, nobody nobody yeah the, the natives won not not the europeans by it by any means the, the europeans quickly adopted it or relatively quickly adopted it and now it is a big thing um you know relatively the way i described it although these days the the thing you drink your mate out of might be more made of wood or ceramic or something like that and uh it's big in the southern cone so specifically in argentina um uruguay paraguay and the south of brazil and it's especially common in uruguay in fact there's actually like it's a common like i don't know joke is the right word but conception that argentines have of uruguayans is that they have this special trick where they know how to like walk down the street um pouring water out of their thermos which is like held in in their armpit like and like with one hand they can pour the water uh, you know into the the mate and drink it and keep doing it (laughs) Uh, which is funny because like Buenos Aires and Montevideo are basically like the same culture like arguably closer to each other culturally even though they're different countries than they are to the interiors of their respective countries
1: and I, I basically noticed that people who spend a lot of time in Argentina um, are big fans of mate. But, like, the first thing that surprised me is the fact that you use a lot. When people say it's tea, you're like, okay. And then the instructions say to fill two thirds of your cup filled with it, right? So obviously the first time I'm like, I I know how to drink tea. I don't have to follow like a nine step process to do this. But I did read as far as like filling two-thirds of my cup full of it. So I I basically poured boiling hot water over two-thirds of a cup full of mate and then tried shoving the straw into it afterwards. And that's not gonna work that's gonna take some effort (laughs) not only was it effort but it was just like way overly bitter because i didn't control the water temperature and it was too close to boiling and it was just way too strong and it was like bubbling on the surface and it was like and there and while i was trying to jam the straw in there it was just like getting stuffed with all of these like loose tea leaves and yeah it's it's actually a process and the process is essentially like you have to tilt all of the leaves onto the side and then pour some cold water on it. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. You don't really need to do all of that. So the first time I did it, I was just like (laughs) poured all of the hot water onto it in the first time without taking any of the uh, steps and processes. And it tastes just completely different, even though like the end result is the same, the, uh, the ritual as you would, describe it actually does make a big difference the weird thing is that you do have to kind of be constantly close to a temperature controlled like hot canister of water because you take small sips and then you pour water on top of it and you like don't drink it all the way down and then pour water on top of it it's like you're constantly replenishing um like 180 degree fahrenheit water on top of it And then drinking it that way as opposed to like just making it once going back to your desk and drinking it all um but the end result is that you are continuously intaking caffeine and it is like a large amount of caffeine i have to admit um but the difference is that with coffee you would probably get jittery or um have some of the other effects that coffee has, like it's an irritant to your lower uh, intestines and your GI tract. Um, and if you have caffeine without that, it's, it's strange, because the normal things that would limit your coffee consumption um, don't really happen. <laughs> so I've been trying to like cut it off at a certain point so I won't have problems sleeping. Um, but I haven't really had issues yet. This is my first week doing it. And, uh, at first when you had me order a kilogram of loose leaf, um, plant matter from South America, I was like, I'm never going to drink this much tea, <laughs> but I'm already like a good way, like into the first bag. And, uh, we'll see. We'll see if, uh, I can maintain the habit, um, definitely seems something that a lot of programmers would do
0: yeah I could totally see programmers picking this sort of thing up I mean it's like a a nice uh, um, ritual that doesn't really take any mental energy but like keeps you caffeinated and uh, especially if you live somewhere cold it'll keep you warm too
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. I like the fact that I do have to actually like get up and uh, reheat the um, tea pot or like the pot of boiling water. Um, So I don't need like the watch that reminds me to stand up every 45 minutes. So my leg muscles don't atrophy from being overly focused and sitting in front of a computer desk all day. Instead, my mate gets cold and I have to get up and fill it up.
0: (laughs) You don't use a thermos?
1: I tried, but I didn't like the differences in temperature. Um, I actually have a teapot in which I could regulate the exact temperature of the water. And I set it to 185, and then I take the teapot over to my desk. And whenever I feel like I need it to be stronger, um, I just reheat the teapot so that it gets back to like 185. And um, then the next pour is uh, stronger again
0: yeah makes sense well i feel like at this point i should have a website where i try to sell people mate which is actually <laughs> something i've considered doing in the past at one point i uh, uh i was a long time ago now more than five years but i talked to a distributor and was considering buying some and trying to sell it <laughs> and like evangelizing mate in, in america but uh
1: it i didn't think happen. it's gonna be a hit it like although Although it has to be... I think this works better for people who work from home um, or at least like can have a tea kettle next to their desk. Um, I, I mean, most let's... people do
0: just use the thermos. You know, If you have a Stanley right. thermos, it'll keep it at 185, So, um, which is... Fahrenheit is the recommended temperature. And I don't know, no big deal in, in my view.
1: Yeah, I, I think... I don't like it back, like back getting a little bit colder than 185 because after it gets just a little colder than 185, then um, I feel like it's less weak. So I like to be able to alternate the temperature.
0: Yeah, um, that's a fair point. I mean the the way people in Argentina do it is you know they have it at 185 and it's in the thermos. Yeah, I mean it stays relatively close to 185. What actually will probably depending on how fast you are drinking your mate what will cool down is the, the leaves, right? So if Mm -hmm. you drink it once and then you wait five minutes, then like there will be some, some water like that at the bottom of the, of the the cup. Um, And then that'll get cold. So when you pour more on, you know, the the average temperature goes down. Plus the, the water will have to reheat the leaves up. Right. Like, I I guess that's what you're saying. And that Mm -hmm. is different from how, you know, people that well the real people like how argentines and uruguayans and whatnot would do it
1: they would also keep like keep drinking it pass it and like pour it it would be kind of a social thing as opposed to something that you forget on your desk for like half an hour between sips
0: definitely yeah very very much so yeah it's a social thing you'll share it between people like with the same straw same metal straw between people that you don't even know
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's it's kind of interesting that like a highly caffeinated drink would be associated as like a social drink um normally in the united states at least we associate alcoholic drinks with social drinks (laughs) and not necessarily like you're passing around a tea or a coffee.
0: Yeah, it's also interesting because all of those are relatively low trust societies, especially compared to, you know, the United States or Europe. And yet they're willing to like, you know, pass a metal straw around to people <laughs> that they don't know very well. Anyway. Ethereum. <laughs> What's going on in the Ethereal world?
1: Um, we're we gonna talk I... about this week. I've read your um, year in Ethereum article and I posted some highlights into our Slack, like a too long, didn't read um, part of it. It was actually like a really...
0: It's too long for most people to read. Imagine how long it took to write. (laughs) (laughs) Forever.
1: Yeah, it's kind of weird, like with a TLDR, because when you actually say it out loud, like, too long didn't read, it sounds more like an insult as opposed to, like, I took the time to do a summary of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like... No, it's, it's fair. <laughs> I mean, I wonder how many people have finished. That's fine. I mean, I think, like, there's a lot of graphics and so you can... It should be relatively skimmable as well, mm-hmm. uh, depending on how into Ethereum you are, so...
1: I found... Um, I found the... Some of the most interesting was the evolution of the projects. Um, Some of these Ethereum projects grew so fast that we assumed that they've been a mainstay for a while, but even with just a one-year snapshot, we can see some really impressive hockey stick style growth in two projects specifically, uh, Compound Finance and Uniswap, mainly because those are two projects that, like, last year just experienced exponential growth. Um, compound grew yeah. uh, a thousandfold from 35,000 Ether to 350,000 Ether, um, as well as growing rapidly in the number of users using it. It's now, it's a lot more common to hear um, about Ethereum based lending platforms. And yeah, that basically just highlights how quickly that change came about as well.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny because when we went back to do the piece, you know, we, we were like, wow, Uniswap really took off this year, which is weird because we felt, you know, it felt like it had been around forever. But of course, then thinking about it, you know, I was talking to Hayden about Uniswap's launch, which launched at devcon so early november of 2018 and you know at the time like there wasn't really any liquidity and there wasn't any um you know people trading on it and 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 whatnot like there wasn't a lot of token pairs either and it took some time before that even happened so you know it didn't even really like start to become a thing at all until until 2019 So yeah, it was, but it was crazy. I mean, it, you know, it, it burst on the scene and became a mainstay in a year. Now a thing where it's hard to imagine it existing without it.
1: So Uniswap's daily volume went from 25,000 to 1.5 million in just last year alone per day volume, average daily volume. And that's, yeah, it basically shows the really rapid increase. But once I have used Uniswap myself, I understood why. It's like two clicks, connect an Ethereum wallet and you could transfer. It's, very, it's the kind of convenience and nice user interface that hides all of the complexity um, behind the scenes. But also, it's just a really good example of programmed incentives. Yeah. One of the uh, highlights that, I mean, this got me instantly curious because it just made me see green, was the fact that Uniswap liquidity providers, people who locked their assets into the protocol, made $1.2 million in fees last year. I believe it. That's just mind blowing. I mean, it's I'm using your data, so of course you believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I believe it too. So, (laughs) and the really interesting thing was that this would, if Uniswap was its own blockchain protocol, it would essentially have raised more transaction fees than almost all blockchain protocols put together, and you don't have to run proof-of-work mining equipment to extract those fees like you would with, I don't know, let's say Tezos or some other uh, platform. They specifically use staking, but you still need hardware to run validator nodes. It's interesting that you you can start making passive income. Both of these are examples of passive income made from HODLers, essentially.
0: Yeah, the, I mean, there was definitely a, a repeating theme of the piece and it's a point that we wanted to make, which is, you know, really, there are only two blockchains, really. There's Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then everything after that, like, they're, the chains are ghost towns. Um, you know, there are a couple of chains that have, quote-unquote, free transactions. Of course, nothing in life is free. You're just paying for it in a different way. <laughs> um, and so, you know, but, like, because of that, they, like, the tape is painted with with fake um fake data like fake transactions um, you know those are the aws coins of course um like eos and tron and, and whatnot um but like the transaction fees uh, there's really only two chains that are used at all i mean and it's sort of crazy that you know these chains that have billion dollar valuations and literally no one uses them i mean and there's like, frankly, nobody building on them and, you know, nobody transacting on them. And somehow they still have billion dollar valuations. At some point, this is going to end. And I, I mean, you know, it will be certainly a sign of the maturation of the space when that happens. And uh, I think it'll be really a good thing for the space as well, because right now there is still the incentive of, well, I'm smart and I want to make money in this new field. Like, the, you know, the easy way to do it right now and for a while, and I think this is starting to end, but it's it's still sort of existed is I start my own I start my own chain and, uh, you know, I market it to retail and um, then I dump on them and exit. Right. Like, and unfortunately, like a lot of people do that. And even the ones that don't exit, I mean, they're still, you know, slowly like in a, in a truly scammy way uh, or they take a few years to do it. You can tell who I'm thinking about from that one, but I won't say it. Uh, um, Like, I mean, there's, there's no, there's nothing there, right? Like, the, I mean, as you said, like Uniswap on its own has like more transaction fees than like every other base chain almost, you know?
1: Um, Yeah, with the exception of uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, and that's really crazy. And the idea that um, on the same topic that more than 600 million dollars in loans were originated on ethereum is mind-blowing as well because ethereum itself isn't like a static token in the sense that you hold it as an asset in and of itself like people are actually using it for something and the 600 million mark just for Collateralized loans is very impressive because it starts highlighting um, the potential use cases. It's not even a potential use case anymore. Like that is a substantially large business in and of itself. Large part of that is Maker, I think, probably two thirds. Um, and it just shows you that like DeFi itself is is underlying in a lot of these themes in the fact that ethereum is in its uh composability and its ability to like do something um basically ethereum has been good enough so that people who build um, projects they will put up with transaction fees and do whatever they need to in order to continue using the platform because that's where the community is That's where business is actually happening, and it's still very difficult to become a Uniswap, a maker, a compound. It's very competitive, and it's probably easier for a new startup to change their underlying business model and say, well, blockchain currently isn't scalable enough, so we're going to make our own base chain but no one's going to use it, right? And there have been a couple, unsuccessful in my opinion, companies that have moved away from Ethereum and rather than like trying to evaluate their underlying business said like, oh, we don't have volume in our dApp because transaction fees are too high. Well, it has been proven through several examples that once they do start their own base chain the cost, the opportunity cost or the network effect of working on the Ethereum platform like most of the successful businesses in the space I wouldn't say most, I would actually say all of the successful businesses built on blockchain um, you essentially lose the network effect and your dApp that was struggling before is now just a ghost town and there's literally no traction because you have to essentially change chains. <laughs> so all of the like side effects of being in a network that is used in which people are curious and they experiment, like sure, most dApps have like maximum less than 10,000 daily active users, but at the same time, every other blockchain application would love to have those kind of numbers. It's... It's kind of weird um, that blockchain currently is so dependent on the investment for launching the chain that subsidizes the entire process itself, because it seems like no one else has demonstrated the ability to build an on-chain business that that uses the blockchain itself as like anything except a speculative asset. It's yeah. it, It's a tough place, but like I definitely got that sense from your article in the sense that essentially Ethereum is making slow, consistent progress. Ethereum 2 is developing and starting to ship. Um, and this year is going to be really exciting for some of the shipments coming from ETH2. But at the same time, it also shows that... Um, there's really not a lot of like su- of successful self-sustaining businesses going on anywhere else. Like they they don't even have the infrastructure or the users or like the actual real transaction volume to ever like really become a long-term sustainable business on any other chain. Basically,
0: I mean all the VC coins that raised you know hundreds of millions of dollars. Like are probably dead in the water, right? Because all those, all those VC coins, like the these crypto funds, have had their money locked up. They really just want to get it out at any price. Like look at look at H bar, um, is like the you know uh, the classic example, or Algorand as well. Like just all the all the funds are just trying to dump as much as they can and drum up just enough interest to to dump on you. And I mean. That like basically the, like the there is a very very strong correlation with how much money a base chain raised with how much it is going to go down.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, if they raised a hundred hundred million dollars, that's a hundred million dollars that the, that is going to be tried to sold onto you if you're not a crypto fund. So, uh,
1: yeah. There's, Algorand's a really good example because its valuation initially after its raise before it was um, tradable was above Ethereum's without really anything to show. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, they, there were some caveats
0: I, around that, but yeah, like I mean, it was. But at yeah. least it wasn't
1: I mean, it pre-products. Was at least they actually shipped something. But as soon as it shipped and well, Susan started trading... Well, they did this weird trading. auction
0: that was, like, structured, had a bunch of, like, weird weird details to the auction.
1: You're saying an uh, initial coin offering happened where insiders got disproportionately advantageous prices? No way! <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of... I think it was probably my internet connection. I kind of broke up there, but... Yeah, I mean, there was... Yeah, there was some... uh some financial engineering um that, that went on there um, anyway whatever let's um, anything else from from the article that you particularly thought was interesting
1: um the growth of daos was worth mentioning there were a lot of Mulak daos and aragon had over 900 daos created um the ethereum maximum throughput increased from 25 transactions to 38 within the last year and um the issuance has gone down actually this is probably my favorite point that you've made in the article and it's something i didn't know actually until reading this either but issuance of ethereum post constantinople hard fork reduced um on a uh, per block per issuance um from three to two so every 14 or so seconds when a new ethereum block is mined um, instead of three ether being created only two ether is created and combined with the reduction in the number of uncle block rewards um, the issuance of ethereum is now similar to that of bitcoin And I found that yeah. really fascinating.
0: Yeah, I mean, Bitcoiners like to like fud about Ethereum quote-unquote monetary policy. The You know, the big difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is using a curve that Satoshi didn't really appear to put much thought into. Um, like, you know, probably wasn't thinking 10 years in the future. He was like thinking like, man, I just like hope to get this accepted. And then, you know, Um, get it launched and hope to get some traction and then people can figure out in the future. And now Bitcoin is like taking this curve that he just randomly um, picked out and like taking it as this, you know, 21 million meme. And unfortunately, like it, it, I mean, basically it, this, there's zero chance that that is sustainable. And the only way it's sustainable is basically if the price of Bitcoin goes to, you know, like millions per Bitcoin, but like, you gotta really think about that. Like, is society really gonna pay millions for Bitcoin when like some people? That's gonna make some people like so rich. Like, I I really kind of doubt it. Um, and I frankly like don't think that like there's any chance of that anyway. Just given how slow and uh, unscalable it is. Like, you, I mean, it literally would be like impossible for that much value to accrue given how few transactions can actually happen on chain uh by the difference is ethereum does a like let's just do the minimum necessary to secure the chain and let's keep trying to drive that downward and it's about to get you know even lower in fact substantially lower than bitcoin when eth 2 goes live and we um we get rid of proof of work Of course, that's probably still a year away from from today. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's exciting. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, I think it's like one of those what more of those signs that we are still really early in the space where, you know, the predominant like way people value is 21 million bitcoin it's a like it's like gold but it's like get it it's, while it's like hot gold because it's, yeah it's not like gold because gold doesn't need mining to be sustainable you know in fact if gold doesn't get mined at all it actually becomes more valuable and if bitcoin doesn't get mined it goes to zero and right now mining is not sustainable so
1: anyway it's that's my um, soapbox on that there's there's actually like a really good theoretical reason why Um, it is currently an assumption that there will only be 21 million Bitcoin. And that is because as you were saying, miners need the incentive to validate blocks and the consensus mechanism assumes that all of these miners are doing all of this work for the block reward plus the transaction fees. So, What is the circumstance in which, if the block reward drops to zero, transaction fees alone will cover the cost of miners? That situation, as you mentioned, is a massive price increase in which, essentially, dust that is being paid out in transaction fees currently is equal to the billions of dollars In energy that miners are currently using and that doesn't take into account the fact that ASICs are gonna keep getting faster and as a result the hash power is gonna keep growing but essentially if the value of Bitcoin being um, mined and the value that's being extracted out of the network by miners becomes lower than the miners operating costs it's pretty clear that they will stop. And there is an untested and unproven hypothesis that for some reason, people will do what's against their economic interest to continue to secure the network. And this is also something that comes up every time people talk about the halving. People are saying, uh-oh, better buy your Bitcoin because the having's coming up. It's like, yeah, the halving was a pre-programmed decrease in issuance, something that the Ethereum community just came to a consensus to and all of the clients implemented back in Constantinople, which will probably happen again. In Ethereum, we didn't pretend to know what the market conditions were so that the economics of mining were sustainable, but it didn't... um, cause like unnecessary inflation so they've kind of been changing it whenever they could and they've done a pretty good job um but and we
0: overpay for security right now but it's better to overpay than underpay
1: exactly um if we're overpaying for security because we're using proof of work and proof of work depends on probabilistic finality so There is no appropriate way using proof of work to optimize your inflation. And a perfect example for this is Zcash. Like I love the Zcash scientists, researchers, um, but it's quite clear with the economics of Zcash and the fact that Zcash blew up as soon as it entered the marketplace. And there are tons of people mining it. However, it followed Bitcoin's issuance curve, which means it was restricted to the same inflation schedule as Bitcoin, but they were already popular when they first started. So right now, Zcash is overly inflationary, and they can't do anything about it. They could, but they choose not to. And that has pretty bad effects on the actual price of zcash for anyone who's been following it which is unfortunate because the project itself is really interesting and has produced some of the most important like breakthroughs in terms of privacy technology for this space Um, but it's clear that since they followed the exact same curve that bitcoin did without taking into account its local economics they've had a inflationary token and they're paying too much for security they're inflating away a lot of their value and it's not very sustainable unfortunately um yes, i would see
0: cash is a strange thing of i don't understand how they decided to launch with that curve and why they, and even more importantly like why they haven't changed it afterwards it's
1: i don't it's, understand why they haven't changed uh, it afterwards
0: yeah, very strange to me but it is what it is. I don't know.
1: <laughs> it's um, one of uh, Corey's like, points that he makes is that uh, blockchain is just digital scarcity. And if Zcash demonstrates that they could essentially change the digital scarcity, then the assumptions about its... Um, if they could decrease issuance, could they also increase it? And is Zcash's value actually based on um, its inflation, or is it based on market sentiment and people's desire to have and hold it? And I don't think either of them are particularly, I think subjective perception of value has a much larger impact than um, certain economic forces, but in certain circumstances, like Zcash, for example, it's hard to underestimate how much of an impact its inflation has had on its underlying price and yeah totally it's one of those things like if they go out of the way and change the uh issuance if they cut the inflation of zcash right now they would both undermine the zero coin company because they have a developer reward and they might undermine the entire like value proposition of the scarcity of the coin, because if they can reduce the issuance, they could also theoretically increase it with the same argument. Um, Zcash has had a lot of like internal discussions and debates regarding its economics. Unfortunately, I think it's been more focused regarding their developer rewards as opposed to the actual... Problem, which, in my opinion, is inflation. Um, totally. Yeah. It's, it's much more complicated than the simple narrative would lead on. Um, but long term, I think it's likely that the issuance of Ethereum will continue to drop. Is that a fair assumption?
0: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it might even get negative. Um, one thing we haven't even discussed is EIP one five five nine, which is a proposal to basically burn half of the transaction fee, and um, it will. It, it's actually going to happen in ETH two already, but it would do it in ETH one. So literally, it would cut issuance in one five five in, in ETH one uh, until ETH two proof-of-stake turns off uh, the proof-of-work chain so um, yeah it's uh you know it's happening ethereum is pragmatic bitcoin is um you know pie in the sky take our chances risking <laughs> that's i mean that's the way i look at the projects um and it's it's pretty amusing to me how much FUD there is about ethereum when like the bitcoin people know that this is true they just want to believe that bitcoin is going to go to a million because it's what they own and um, i I don't think any like rational thought says that but you know what's fun about the future is that we'll see
1: (laughs) and also none of these projects are in their final form
0: yeah that's true i mean you know i think one of the things about bitcoin is that people thought it would you know if you go back to like 2013 people talked about bitcoin um absorbing any good features from from any quote-unquote altcoin and that was a big thing that bitcoin maximalists said back then and frankly like it was it made kind of a lot of sense to be a bitcoin maximalist you know in 2012 and 2013 because frankly all those coins were not super legit but i mean as time has proven out like Bitcoin is super slow. It is strongly defaults to doing nothing unless you can get a few people to agree to it. And they, you know, I don't know, they all work at Blockstream. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm rather skeptical of this idea that um, Bitcoin will ever, you know, make changes. And in fact, I think there would be a huge outcry from its community. I mean, you see like a bunch of people now say, 21 million is more important than sustainability. You know, if 21 million doesn't hold, then Bitcoin should just fail, which uh, I mean, I think that is predestining (laughs) the the future, if that's your attitude. But hey, we'll we'll
1: see. We will see. Nice. It was an awesome article and thanks for the time you put into it. Um, I I do feel like you could have made that conclusion part of it as well but it was very facts oriented and you definitely left out the opinion glad you shared it here
0: josh josh is the one who definitely takes the lead on that so um credit to josh i'm i'm like the secondary author like i authored some of the portions and but yeah he's the primary author for sure i zero x stark on twitter
1: I found it really interesting that um, in the Ethereum space, we have access to the internal financials of all of these companies. We have access to transaction volumes, even assumptions uh, for daily active users. But at the same time, like it's difficult to extract. You have to have a certain level of knowledge and expertise um, and it assumes that you have like a minimum technical proficiency to be able to even extract or to know what you're looking for to look up this public blockchain data and provide context around it. But it's nice to find a cohesive narrative um, that's data focused, data driven, and it's like kind of refreshing. <laughs> it's one of those things in which. Once I read through that, I realized why blockchain-based reporting isn't this consistent or clear, and it's because um, Josh Stark has like he's a good developer. Do you know what project he works for? Is he also in Consensus or?
0: He is not a developer. He is, so he works for uh, L four and Eth Global.
1: He works for L4, which is a, a state channel, a developer of the state channel standards. And he works for ETH Global, but he's not a developer. <laughs> Interesting.
0: Yeah. Nope. Not, I think I'm more of a developer than he is. I think I've written probably a lot more code than he has in, huh. in our lives. Interesting. I don't, know, I don't know if he codes at all, to be honest with you. Yeah. But he does a great job with, I mean, great job with these articles. It is. He's actually a lawyer by training.
1: Really? Wow. Yeah. It's it just like, it's strange because it seems like everyone within Ethereum has a developer mindset or background. And I also feel like the way we communicate internally in the community, it's very developer focused. Um, is it fair to say that most of the people who read Week in Ethereum are like developers or they want to break into the space in one way or another?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't even do a lot of tracking on an answer to that stuff. And um, yeah, I I mean, that's kind of who it's aimed at, but it's tough to tell, you know, every time I like introduce myself to a developer at a conference or whatever, they've never heard of in Ethereum. So it's, uh, Hmm. it's, it's tough to, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of developers, just aren't into the idea of going on to reddit or twitter right and if you're not into those then you probably get your news off of coindesk which is unfortunate uh, given their their problems with reporting accurately on ethereum um and you know and whatnot so um yeah i don't know i don't know how to solve that it's definitely a problem ethereum has is that you know the, the news outlets that often people report on are not generally good at being accurate when it comes to Ethereum.
1: It's also kind of difficult because blockchain companies aren't the best at self-reporting. I think one, exemption, oh, one exception to this is Maker. I think they have taken an extra step in transparency by having a, a graphical user interface to be able to track the current state of their network. Um, but it's hard to trust them as first party sources. Even like third party apps um that aggregate data on Ethereum aren't that reliable. Right? And yeah. it's it's hard to be able to rely on them. Some of them have massive oversights. And then we look like why <laughs> we look at CoinDesk articles and we're like, why did they massively under report the assets currently being held? And it's like, oh, because they miss like three out of five of the top projects because they were using someone's side project as the definitive (laughs) definitive source of truth for ethereum projects um
0: coindesk has multiple problems too i mean like one of their reporters is like talks about how she's never used any ethereum like app and doesn't own any eth and like kind of says that self-righteously of course she says she owns bitcoin um and it's like well yeah so you don't understand what you're reporting on and don't even do the work required like the minimum work required to like understand any of it at all it's it's truly baffling that somebody to me that somebody would actually admit that and then like try to be proud of it like it's I mean I, to it's me it was signaling. like you've gotten fired for saying that you know like
1: but I it's mean signaling. yeah I
0: guess in some ways it is like uh, look at me I'm a Bitcoiner or something but right she i mean she's a reporter like she's supposed to like she's not doing her job she can't even be objective if she doesn't like even do the basics to understand what she's supposed to be covering it's strange to me but yeah it is the state of play in this i think very the strange, most i think the, the biggest industry.
1: problem with um coin dust specifically is the fact that um isn't the head of Coindesk also the head of like grayscale investments or something like that? I think it's yeah, very silver.
0: Exactly. um, I think it's the actual
1: ownership structure. Like you have a news outlet in which the principal equity holder of this news outlet is also a manager of an exchange traded fund that does nothing else except help people who are, I wanted to say uninformed about blockchain, but that's unfair, um, who are unwilling to invest in blockchain themselves. They're offloading this responsibility, and yet at the same time, the premier media outlet is the one then serving them it's
0: well so so barry i mean barry owns grayscale as well to be fair like they barry grayscale has an ethereum trust these days so um the incentives are 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 not as you know uh aligned for poor reporting as they used to be um you know he used to just be a Bitcoiner who then did the etc trust and that's you know partly why there are a lot of favorable etc articles you know I, a lot of people have said that you know when you ask him like about influence over coindesk he always jokes i don't have as much you know like influence as i wish i had um which i you know is is sort of amusing but uh, yeah I mean, i'm sure yeah, Rupert Murdoch he has that also, much influence but i'm yeah, also people, sure people rupert murdoch does affect
1: fox news's output as well you know But it's like uh, actual reporters, for example, um, Nathaniel Popper, the uh, author of Digital Gold and Wall Street Journal reporter, made it a point to highlight the fact that he doesn't own any uh, blockchain assets because then he couldn't objectively report on them because he would immediately be forced to disclose his conflicts of interest, which on one side, that means he doesn't use the underlying technology because he'd be excluded from the networks. On the other side, that is normally a requirement for financial reporters, like people working for the Wall Street Journal. You can't have someone who has Tesla shorts publish articles about Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> but
0: I, I actually think he did say he owned some Bitcoin, just very little. Uh, but anyway
1: yeah it doesn't really matter it's it it's a very strange time um and it's something that people seem to discount the um traditional practices of financial independence and um like disclosing conflicts of interest that are illegal like it is literally against the law um in the normal markets but it's blockchain it's the wild west regulation hasn't caught up make your money quickly get out before it pops and then don't worry about all the people that you've been influencing <laughs> it's it's kind it of the most
0: people in the space act that way yeah
1: it's still kind You're of right. the mindset so what
0: else is what else happened this week what else is on the list to talk about
1: Um, Those were the main points I wanted to cover. There are definitely some other points that I want to touch on another day. Oh yeah. The um, end to end formal verification of the Ethereum to deposit smart contract conducted by runtime verification.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. the, The, uh, this had become like a thing on Reddit, which I don't know if it was people that actually hold ETH or it was just like trolls from outside, but had like made this big deal about it because at some point somebody had said that this will probably be ready, you know, a few months ago. Um, and they were harping on it as like this reason why ETH 2 hasn't shipped yet. And mm. in actuality, it's like, you know, the deposit contract is not that big a deal. Um, like it's not, the, it's not the reason anything isn't shipping. It's, you know, optimizing the clients so that they run faster and, you know, and getting the security audits. And like, that's basically what we're waiting for right now for ETH2 to to go live. Um, So, yeah, but the, the runtime verification is this company that does formal verification, which basically means that they prove that the software is correct to the specification that you, that you wrote. And um, you know, it is it is done. They formally verified that it is it is exactly like the specification says. And um, they did it at the bytecode level. So, you know, it's, uh, it's ready to go. And when they decide to deploy it, then we can all put our ETH uh, into this contract and then wait for ETH2 to go live
1: so you would lock your funds in you can't withdraw them because the withdrawal process isn't set up you can't use the funds because you don't have smart contract composability on ETH 2 but you do yeah, have a, a the way. ability to start earning mining rewards especially if ETH 1 moves from proof oh. of work to proof of stake earlier than planned
0: yeah yeah staking rewards <laughs> Yes.
1: Yeah. I I think the economic incentives don't exist yet to lock up your ETH until that staking rewards idea is fully panned out. Um, But that doesn't mean that certain people, and I think I might be one of them, would be willing to essentially um, signal that, like, i would be a validator by locking up my rewards early regardless of the incentive because if you have enough ether to run a validator node and you don't have that ether actively on a lending platform it's not a liquidity provider on um, uniswap it's not in DAI or um, on compound then I guess why not? <laughs> but it is kind of weird because the incentives aren't fully there yet. Yeah, it seems a little premature. I don't know what your well, perspective on I mean, that
0: is. I mean the the um, you know the the staking rewards per thirty two ETH are substantially higher when there is a lower amount of total ETH that is st- staked on on the beacon chain so it is quite likely that the staking rewards will be highest as soon as it goes left so yeah i mean i think there's there are reasons that you might want to put your your eth in there um and stake right right away at the start but But there won't be staking
1: rewards at first will there yeah there will oh okay
0: it doesn't i mean yeah there does doesn't make any sense if there's not. They they're definitely staking rewards.
1: So are the staking rewards simply paid through inflation? Yes. Okay. Uh, but the inflation itself is lower than what it would be on the proof of work chain regardless.
0: So there is a a link on on ethub that has um a graph which is useful. And I mean, I can say it's docsethubio slash ethereum-basics slash monetaries-policy. We'll probably put that in the show notes. But basically, like, there is, like, a tiny little bump where it goes from, like, it, you know, issuance right now is about 4%. um, And it it goes to, like, 4.1% when the beacon chain goes live. And then when we turn off the when we turn off proof of work then issuance goes down to like 0.2 percent a year 0.2 percent and that's actually more of like a maximum number and could even be negative given what i talked about with uh, transaction fees getting burned mm-hmm. like half of the transaction fees going to stakers and half of them getting burned so
1: yeah yeah, we'll definitely content link content uh, we'll definitely link it. I have read through this before. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely interesting. There's one more article, actually, that you wrote, <laughs> but you didn't publish it on your own newsletter. Some gentle criticisms and comments on Vitalik's Gitcoin CLR. Do you want to talk about that?
0: Uh, yeah, sure. Um. I I just published that today. It um, I really wanted to make the point, which is like relatively use relatively obvious if you've done it, but maybe not obvious if you haven't done it. Which which is that it it is a popularity contest. It is basically how the the contest like how the algorithm is designed and. That's that's kind of the point, is that it's supposed to be limited to real people. And it is a signaling mechanism, um, whereas I think some people think that it is a donation incentivization mechanism, but it's actually, it's not. It's really more about signaling where you want the matching pool to be distributed to. And I think that's a pretty common misconception. And then I, I made some points as well about how it's actually more of an early popularity contest, which is to say, the um, there there's trade offs there because, like, you can either screen the number of options to give money to, or you can just let anybody put 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 their thing up, which is what they did this round. They just let anybody put their their grant up, and so there were three hundred options to give money to, and so you know as a site you have to sort of make some decisions about how you're going to show that to your users so basically they they did some awaited shuffle is what they call it and it was actually Vitalik's idea from 6 months ago to basically like the more money you already have means the more likely you are to show up in the beginning which makes sense right like i mean some something that nobody has given to is probably not something that anyone else wants to give to but it also has the the effect of making of cementing the matthew principle which is you know to everyone who has more will be given and so yeah like it basically it is an early popularity contest if you get a few donations before everybody else then you are likely to do pretty well in in the matching funds and so yeah i just you know it was um you know, I called it a gentle criticism I think but it was more in some ways more education than, than anything else and there were some other assorted points in the piece as well but those are the main that's the main thrust
1: I think those are good points and um, internally here at the Bitcoin podcast um, I was working with some of our very close collaborators on launching our own and you made these points and we realized that since we were late essentially to the table, we'd already missed something like three or four days of um, people donating. And as you were saying, it's an early popularity contest because of the way the search algorithm um, was sorting. And a lot of the people that, um, that were on our podcast already donated by that point. So we would yeah. have to ask them to come again to the same platform to be able to do it. And even if we do have like some familiarity and recognition within the space, we would have to use like personal requests in order to have them actively like go back onto the site and find us. And we would always be playing catch up. And it was a really good point. It's um, it's interesting the way you put it out there. And it's also really interesting how you were saying that um towards the bottom of the article. I'm sorry, I actually haven't read it. This was posted in our Slack um while we were having this conversation, but <laughs> um <laughs>
0: now I found out what you what you're doing while I talk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was a personal message, so I read it actually in the notifications which I turned off immediately after. <laughs> It, you also ended the um, paragraph by saying, I immediately distributed much of the donations I received. And I found that really interesting as well, but it makes perfect sense in the sense that um, the things that you receive in the form of donations are actually magnified by your ability to give it to other people. Because by donating money that you received from this Gitcoin grants project, you essentially get to split the matching with other people. So you're signaling that the... You're, you are essentially signaling, like, I want the people who gave money to me to also get money, <laughs> if that makes sense. And it's like, um, I mean, this is the worst word to use in this current time, day and age. It's kind of like a quid pro quo. <laughs> um, sorry in advance for that highly politicized term, yeah that but... i mean that
0: is definitely true that like people that um well first of all you said like you would have to do like personal appeals and i think that um i mean i, I certainly i know how i had people like personally appealed in may yeah and um you know it's pretty effective right like all right i'll give you a dollar like give, like give me a second you know yeah um, because like that is basically the point of the algorithm is like to incentivize you to give a dollar um the uh, like the quick pro quo angle, like so, there was a separate like that was actually something Vitalik talked about. Um, as like, quick pro quos are supposed to be well, there was a like controversy around somebody had promised some stuff, and somebody other people pointed out the quick pro quos are not supposed to be okay. The um, I think like people giving to each other in. Like that, are both in, um, it, it, like that, are both re- potential recipients of, of matching. Uh, I mean, I think that's like an issue, but if, yeah, I mean, if I like, if I give to a competitor and my competitor gives to me and we make that deal, it does benefit us at the event, at the expense of everybody else, but it obviously doesn't, like, it keeps us equal between each other. Right. right? I you know there's like no real way around that and aside from the fact that it's already a symbol like they they're using your identity on GitHub so while you could have a student like a pseudonym that you established like multiple years ago and you you know and you violate civil right like so you have multiple identities like that is possible it's you know identity is relatively controlled so this idea of, like, quid pro quo is, like, pretty controlled. Like, that's the point of the algorithm, too.
1: Right. And if you do a kind of, like, quid pro quo, it's like, I'll donate to your projects if you donate to mine, Um, it does show that you have, like, the trust of other people in the space as well. And you wouldn't do that necessarily for projects you don't know or trust, because there's nothing to force them to enforce that agreement either. Um, I don't think it's that big of a uh, problem with this type of uh, mechanism because in the end, the real purpose of it is to signal intent. But I think the uh, the side effect is also that you are habituating people to donating and supporting usually like content creators or open source contributors or projects that they use anyways. And I think in the last Gitcoins grants, a lot more people donated, and a lot more money was brought by the community than any of the previous ones. And I think it's only going to grow, right? The popularity yep. of the aspect of the um, project is going to grow. The more people use it, and the more money gets allocated to it, even if it's on this like tit for tat basis, the more money gets invested into, like, your newsletter or open source development or similar things, which was the whole point. Like, game theoretically, like, it increases the total amount in the circulation, because even if you do a, quote, like, quid pro quo with one of your competitors, both of you have introduced money into the system, right, that wouldn't have been there before, and the only way that um, essentially either of you would um, like profit off of it is if the disproportionate return would be higher than the amount you donated, but that's also the whole point, right? The whole point is that you are essentially trying to encourage more money with a large matching grant program, right? I found it an interesting experiment, and I thought it was fairly successful, but um, I did like the points that you were making. Do you have po- like suggestions to how to make it better?
0: Well, so Vitalik um, argued for negative voting being a thing, so basically you can downvote somebody, and by doing that you can uh, you'll put money into the pool by taking, like, you'll put your money directly into the pool, and then Take away from whoever you're downvoting. Um, that definitely changes a lot of the social norms as well as like game theory, um, especially for a game that is played repeatedly. I haven't really thought about that. I think the uh, actually the the bigger thing to me is that as long as they let anybody put a, a project up, and this is a point I made in the piece, eventually you're gonna have like you're going to have trolls do it. Right. So you're going to have like Bitcoin maximalists like, uh, you know, I'm not even going to name it, but think of like the most annoying, most hateful Bitcoin maximalist that you can come up with. And like he, and they're all he's, by the way, he submits a grant <laughs> and is on the page. And then he gets, you know, he's got 200,000 Twitter followers or whatever. And he manages to get them to all give him money. And then he gets the most money out of this thing instead of <laughs> like the eth community um you know i in some ways that's actually a weird one because if that actually were to happen it's like in a weird way sort of a win to have the, all these bitcoin maximalists have to like buy some eth like a small amount of eth and then use the chain and then realize and that it, it's a million times yeah, <laughs> easier than bitcoin and yes. much more usable
1: <laughs> um, and all of a sudden you know they have an ethereum address and not only do they have an ethereum address they also have followers who have Ethereum addresses and then they start using the applications and they're like, Hmm, I guess decentralized exchanges are really nice that I didn't have to go through KYC in order to exchange for some (laughs) die." It's like, (laughs) yeah, I,
0: uh, that's, that's why it's like a weird example. I mean, I was thinking more of like, you know, I, I, in the piece I said like, um, I said, like, BitConnect or, like, you know, IOTA or Tron or, you know, XRP or whatever. Like, like pro- projects that are, like, zero tech and 100%, you know, shilling. And I I think that would be, like, pretty pretty interesting, right? Like, if, if there was some, like, thousand, thousand votes that came in at the end. And they were actually real people. Like, you know, you could actually, like, track them to real people somehow. Like... What would we do then? So I actually think we should like more or less make a rule that it is for the Ethereum community, and like, hey, if ETC wants to do it as well, then like they should, and if you know, um, like they can put up their own pool of matching money. But uh, I, I think that's like a relatively important thing to to do. Um, yeah, but we'll we'll see.
1: Um, I I norms, was a huge norms fan. Norms also actually. matter. And not to mention, I liked the the user experience of the matching funds program. I read through a lot of the proposals. As I said before, I also wrote one, which will be ready for next time. Um, And yeah, uh, we'll probably hear about it more when that time comes around. We'll chill it in in about three months. Definitely, we'll chill it hard. The idea is that we need to create a... um, a communications research study on how best to present Ethereum to uh, different socioeconomic groups and identify how best to uh, coordinate marketing uh, resources effectively to like grow the community but most importantly to learn how to actually communicate with um, various interest groups it's uh, it's easy to see that sometimes the ethereum community is a bit of a filter bubble in and of itself and um yeah even some of our other co-hosts on the network are constantly like hey what's going on with ethereum like (laughs) anything new and i'm like yeah there's there's a ton every week and we, uh that's basically how this show came about it's, it was just so difficult to keep up with that it necessitated its own show on I that think, note yep yeah, that's a perfect note to uh leave off on and join us next week so we can keep you updated with what is good in ethereum see you next week